following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 24th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. All right, go ahead and get your Bible. Make your way to Galatians chapter 5. We are going to pick up exactly where we were last week. Um, Let me add as you're headed there, let me add my thank you um, to all of you who have prayed for and partnered with Youth Life in any way. I'll tell you, our offices are over at the 400. That's where all of us on staff actually work. And it's been so much fun the last two weeks uh, to see these kids come, to hear them laughing, to hear them talking, to see the rooms downstairs turned into classrooms where they're being encouraged in, in the library upstairs, to be up there working and to look out over the yard and see them playing and laughing, to see Jackie with them. Um, it's been really fun for us there to see this. And so thank you to all of you who have prayed uh, for the Learning Centers, who have partnered with them, continue to do that. Um, your prayers and your partnership are impacting more lives than you could probably imagine. So thank you for all of that and keep doing it. So Galatians chapter 5, that's my PSA. Um, We're going to pick up where we left off, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of chapter 5. Then we're going to go back together this morning and look at some things that we didn't deal with last week, see how they fit in together into what Paul's saying and what they say to us now this morning as God's people. So Galatians chapter 5, you can follow along with me. We'll start in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Yet I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Let's pray and then see what God has for us this morning. Father, we thank you again for the rich privilege it is to be gathered here by your grace and by the work of your spirit in our hearts, Lord, with the eager anticipation that you, together with your word and your spirit, will continue to form the reflection of your son, his likeness in our hearts. That's what we want. That's what we need. And we need you to do the miracle this morning for that reality to be true of us. Lord, conform us in increasing measure to your son. Help us to reflect to a watching world the same love with which we have tasted and loved and known from you. God, that's what we want. 
And it takes your spirit at work in us to make that a reality. So we ask this morning you would do that in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. When Jesus began his public ministry, the first time he stood up in the synagogue, he took the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolled it and he began to read from Isaiah 61. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and release to the oppressed. This was Jesus' inaugural sermon. It was Jesus' way of saying publicly, this is what I'm about. This is what my ministry is about. This is what my mission is about. I'm about freedom. And so as we began to look at Galatians chapter 5 last week and understood that Paul had been building up to this point throughout the first four chapters to proclaim that it was for freedom that Christ set us free, we realized that Paul is not coming up with his own message. He's not inventing his own ideas. Paul is proclaiming to the church that which Jesus proclaimed, that it was for freedom that he came, freedom that he lived, freedom that he died, for freedom that God raised him from the dead. Last week, we looked at that fact, that by the grace of God, you and I have been set free for freedom. But what does it look like? We're set free to something to freedom. But what does it look like? What does freedom look like? How do free people live? Well, in many ways, the, the rest of the book of Galatians, the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6, really begin to unpack the answers to those questions. What do free people look like? How do free people live? What is freedom itself? What's it look like? That's what the rest of the book is going to answer. But this morning, we're just going to narrow our scope down to these 15 verses. And if I can narrow the scope down to these verses that we've been familiar with now for two weeks, I'll try to summarize it like this. Those who are justified by grace. That's the argument Paul has been making for the entirety of the letter so far. Those who have been justified by the grace of God. Therefore, those that are truly free. Here's what freedom looks like. Here's what you're free to you are free to love others with abandon. Paul brings his argument of freedom to a head in chapter 5, in these 15 verses, to this. You are set free by the grace of God. You are free to love others with abandon. That's what freedom looks like. Verse 6, we didn't look at it last week. We'll look at it this morning. Let me show you where I'm getting this, and then we'll unpack it together. Verse 6. Paul says that it's in Christ Jesus that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's a massive statement. Those things don't count for anything. So your obedience to God's law in order for him to love you, that's what they've been teaching, this idea of circumcision Paul is talking about, or your disobedience to that, none of that counts for anything when it comes to God's love for you. The only thing that matters and counts is faith working through love. Remember, these churches were being fed the lie that they had to not only believe that God loved them and sent his son to die for their sins, but to know that they were really saved, that God really did love them, they also had to become circum circumcised to be justified. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Only faith that energizes love ultimately counts for anything. Only faith that produces love counts for anything. 
Another way of saying it might be this. If your faith is not producing love, it's not a biblical faith. This is the argument that Paul is making. If there's no evidence of love in your life, it stands to reason there may be no evidence of your justification. Paul's going to continue this line of reasoning in the rest of chapter 5. We'll, we'll look at it next week, but I'll give you a preview. Paul's going to give us a long list of unloving behaviors, of unloving characteristics. And of those unloving behaviors and unloving characteristics, Paul says those who do those things or are characterized by those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But those that do inherit the kingdom of God are marked by one thing first. You know what it is? Love. Love. So Paul says in chapter 5, verse 13, that it's through love that you and I are to serve one another. In fact, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is saying in these verses that if your understanding of the gospel, if your understanding of freedom does not lead you to increasingly reflect the love of the one who has loved you and saved you, then you may have misunderstood the gospel. You may actually be misunderstanding freedom. And in that, you may not be truly free. The fruit of freedom is loving others with abandon. Now, if that's the fruit of freedom, if free people look like those who love others with abandon, just take a moment and ask yourself, does my life reflect this freedom? How free would my life say I am? To the extent that we are loving others with abandon, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, to that extent, that is the extent to which we are experiencing and living in the freedom that God has purchased for us through his son. Ask yourself this. Would a watching world say when they think about who are the most loving self-sacrificial, serving people that I can come up with, would the first people that would come to their mind be the people that gathered in the church? Is that what the watching world thinks about God's people? Friends, a careful examination even of God's people today would reveal that quite to the contrary, we have just as hard of a time getting along with one another as the world does. That within the church, our divorce rates are keeping pace with those that aren't gathered amongst God's people. That just as secular sociologists tell us that in America we are living in the most unprecedented time of disconnection, isolation, and loneliness, you see the same things creeping themselves into the lives of God's people. Relationships and tensions between people of different ethnicities in the church mirror that of the world. Friends, how free are we really? To what extent are we experiencing and living in the freedom that God has purchased for us through his son? Do you want to be a people that's known for loving others with abandon? There's good news. We can increasingly become those people. We can become a people that increasingly love others freely. In Galatians chapter 5, I think Paul lays out for us a pattern for what it looks like for this kind of love to be cultivated in us increasingly by God's Spirit and reflected through our lives to a watching world for the good of others. 
And here's how I'm going to say it. I'm going to tell you up front, and then we're going to pick it apart. Here's what I think Paul is communicating to us in Galatians chapter 5. That as you embrace the offense of the cross, you are free then to stand firm in grace and long for the fullness of redemption, and that frees you to love others with abandon. Embracing the offense of the cross, standing firm in grace, and longing for the fullness of redemption frees you to love others with abandon. To say it more succinctly, freedom looks like faith, hope, and love in action. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to unpack each one of those as quickly as I can, and then we're going to look at how together they work in us a love, a freedom that allows us to love others with abandon. So if we want to live free, if we want to experience and live in the fullness of the freedom that is ours by God's grace, if we want to be a people that freely love others with abandon, that reflects the kind of love that we have been loved with by God himself, it starts by you and I embracing the offense of the cross. Look at verse 11. We skipped verse 11 last week because we're coming to it this morning. Paul says, If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, in the context of the letter, there must have been some kind of aspect to the argument that these teachers were making to the churches that Paul wasn't a consistent teacher. In fact, Paul was a hypocrite. They were saying that Paul would change the message of the gospel depending upon the audience he was talking to. When he was with the Israelites and with the Jews, it was Jesus in obedience to the law and circumcision. When it was the Gentiles, it was Jesus and faith in Christ alone. No need for obedience to the law or circumcision. That Paul would change the gospel depending upon where he was so as to make it less offensive. And Paul is simply saying, listen, if I still preached as you say that it's Jesus plus something else over here, if I still preached that it was confidence and faith in Jesus plus circumcision plus performance for God, why are you hassling me everywhere I go? I mean, if that's really what I'm doing... Why are you everywhere I go hassling me and trying to get in my way? Are I not saying the same thing that you are? What Paul's communicating here in verse 11 is simply this. Everywhere I go, every time I preach the gospel, every time I proclaim the gospel to someone, I make it my aim every time for the gospel, for the cross of Jesus Christ to be the offense. I let the message of the cross be the thing that offends the hearts of men and women, not some kind of additional requirement of some level of conformity to something that they have to do. I let the cross be the offense. Now, what is the offense of the cross? What is that? Is that the, the violent nature of crucifixion itself? Is it the gore of a broken body and a spiked body and a bleeding body on a tree? As offensive as that reality is to our sensibilities, that's not the offense that Paul is talking about. The offense of the cross that Paul is talking about is the declaration that your potential, that thing you take such pride in, your ability, your human man-made sense of identity, it's not near enough to save you or justify you before God. In fact, one writer will say this, the cross of Jesus Christ says that the Son of God had to suffer your damnation to rescue you from your horrible addiction to your own sense of potential. That's the offense of the cross. 
When you look at the cross, when you see Jesus' body hanging there, broken, bleeding, his voice fading out into the darkness, Paul is saying the offense that's standing before you, the message that's being proclaimed to you is this. I'm not here dying for my own sins. I'm not up here broken and bleeding and dying for something that I've done. I'm dying for yours. Don't you dare buy into the lie that your sense of goodness, your sense of obedience, your sense of duty, or whatever it is that gets caught up in your mind is in any way enough or sufficient to erase the reality of your sinfulness. That's the offense of the cross. It takes the sacrificial death of God's Son in your place to save you. And that is utterly offensive to our pride. It devastates any sense of potential and superiority that we build up in our own sense of identity. Listen, Paul will say repeatedly in different ways throughout the letter, if you've never been offended by the cross, you've never been offended by the gospel. If you've never been offended by the cross, there's a good chance you've never really felt it and you probably don't understand it. So do you know what Paul would say? Don't turn away from it. It's why he keeps the cross the main thing. He lets the cross be the offense. And Paul would say, keep your eyes fixed on that thing. Don't turn away from that thing in disgust. Don't reject that thing. Keep your eyes fixed on it. Because as you keep your eyes fixed on that thing, it will offend your pride. And as it offends your pride, you've got to watch this, it will melt your heart. As it offends your pride, it will begin to melt your heart. Because it's there that you and I will begin for the first time to really understand, experience, and feel what it means to be truly loved. One writer said that God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because he is love. And the cross is the price he's willing to pay. And so if we are as evil as God says, and if Jesus atoned for our evil at the cross, then God must love us amazingly. Friends, the starting point, the foundation for becoming a people that love others with abandon, for becoming those people, it's right here. It's embracing the offense of the cross. It's embracing the declaration and the message that there's nothing in me inherently that can do anything to earn the love of God that it took the life, death, and resurrection of his son in my place to save me. Becoming people that can love that way, that we have been loved, starts by embracing that reality. But the pattern continues. Look at verse 5. We skipped it last week because we're coming to it this week. Paul says that, verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of of righteousness. Now, let me paraphrase that. I've already told you, here's what I'm going to say. To live free and to love others with abandon, not only must we embrace the offense of the cross, but we must stand firm in grace and long for the fullness of redemption. I believe that's what Paul's saying in verse 5. When Paul says in the beginning of Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, that Christ has set us free for freedom, therefore stand firm, that is a more visceral more pictorial, 
uh, more accurate depiction of what he's saying in verse 5 when he says we live by faith. Standing firm is what faith looks like. Faith is not simply mental assent to a set of information. Faith is an active, ongoing, willful, intentional dependence and confidence. That's what standing firm actually means. Standing firm is a way of describing faith, the willful, intentional confidence that we have in the grace of God. So faith, as Paul talks about it in verse 5, is an intentional stand to refuse to believe that we can or have to do anything to earn God's love for us. So as we embrace the offense of the cross, we are free to stand firm in grace. We are free to live today and tomorrow by faith. Free to stand firm in grace, knowing that God has done for us through his Son all that we can never do for ourselves. We cannot be a people who can love others with abandon if we're not standing firm in grace. I'll tell you why in just a little bit, but we've got to cover the other one first. Verse 5 also tells us to live free to live and experience the fullness of the freedom that's ours and to love others with abandon, we must be a people who are longing for the fullness of redemption. That's another way to say what Paul was saying there at the end when he says that we ourselves, you and I, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You could say it like this, standing firm, it's another way to describe faith. Standing firm is rooted in the past, in the grace of God for us through his son on the cross. We stand firm in that grace. We stand firm, confident by faith in what God has done for us on the cross. But it looks forward to the fullness and the future of the fulfillment of all that God has promised. The hope of righteousness. Now, The one thing I have been asked about this more than anything else when we've talked about this text with other people is this. Is Paul changing what it means to be righteous right here? I mean, we've said over and over and over again, repetitive like a broken record throughout this entire series, that by faith alone, in Christ alone, God declares you righteous right now. In his eyes, you are right, forgiven, clothed in the robes of his son's righteousness. Is Paul saying something different right here? No, not at all. Paul is saying yes and amen right now in Christ's eyes you are declared righteous. The key to understanding what he's saying is in how we understand that word hope. You see when you and I use the word hope we always use it with a hint of uncertainty. I hope he gets done preaching soon. You don't know if it's going to happen. It's wishful thinking. I hope this happens. I don't know. I'm not sure, but that's what I want. When we talk about hope, it, it always carries this, this hint, this, this attitude of uncertainty to it. But the word that's translated here, hope, in its original language, the way it's used in the Bible, is just the opposite. It doesn't carry a sense of uncertainty to it. It communicates a certainty about something in the future. You see, Paul is saying that the hope of righteousness It's the certain reality of what is to come. 
It's the certain reality of what your future is because by grace you have been made righteous. So by faith alone in Christ alone, God has made you right in his eyes. You are righteous. Because you are righteous, you have the certain hope, the certain reality of the hope of righteousness, the fullness of all that God has promised. You are heirs, Paul's already said, of all the promises of God. This hope of righteousness is the day when all of those things come to fulfillment. This hope of righteousness is this longing for the day that God has promised will come when all that he has begun through the life, death, and resurrection of his son will be completed. It's when all that's broken will be made new. That's the longing that's meant to mark the hearts of those who are experiencing and living in this freedom. Paul says we have biblical hope. We have certainty because by God's grace we are righteous so we know that which God has promised in the future is going to be ours. You could say it this way and it deserves an entirely different sermon series and we'll get to it one day maybe. But freedom longs for the day of Jesus' return. That's what it looks like. It looks like an eager waiting, an eager hoping, an eagerness for the return of Christ and the ushering in of the fullness of all that God has promised. Free people long for that day. And so we could spend an entire series asking the question that maybe a good way to gauge the experience of the freedom that you and I are living in is by the intensity with which we long for the day of Christ to return. But here's the thing. We can't be a people that freely love others with abandon if we're not a people who are longing for the fullness of God's redemptive purposes. If we're not a people hoping, longing for the hope of righteousness. Why? How, how does embracing the offense of the cross, standing firm in grace, and longing for the day of Christ free us to love with abandon? That's the question that we have to answer. How do those things make us, grow us, increasingly cause us to be a people that are able to love others with abandon, reflecting the love that we have been shown by God? How is that lived out? How do faith, hope, and love go together? Well, here we go. When we embrace the offense of the cross, when we embrace the fact that it takes the perfect sinless Son of God to die in my place for my sin, for me to be reconciled to God. Do you know what happens? All illusions of my superiority, all illusions of my own self-sufficiency, all illusions of my own capability, all illusions of my own potential to perform well for God that he might love me, all those things get crushed. They begin to be shattered and as those begin to be shattered and we begin to embrace in our hearts the offense of the cross that says none of those things can make you right, only what I've done for you in my son can accomplish that very thing for you and we grab hold of that and we embrace that reality, you and I become free now to stand firm today in grace. And as we do that, let me show you, that frees us to be a people that can love with abandon. Why? How does us standing rooted in grace now, grace that has been embraced in our heart 
through the offense of the gospel and the proclamation of the message of the cross, how does us standing firm in grace, living by faith, help us be people that love others with abandon? Let's do it this way. The message that Paul has been trying to correct and this faux gospel that we've been talking about is a message that says you need to do something for God in order for him to love you. You need to do something, be somebody that, that God will look at and be pleased with if you're going to know that he really loves you and his affections towards you. When we're standing firm in grace, we're holding tight to the reality that that message is not true. When we're not standing firm in grace, that's the message that begins to shape our heart, which means when we love one another... When we do something sacrificial for one another, when we do something loving for someone else, when we stand for the least of these, when we fight against this over here, when we do all these things not rooted and firm in the grace of God and in the message that I don't have to do anything for God to love me, we begin to do all these things in an effort to polish up our image before God. All of a sudden, my love for you, who's it really about? When I'm not standing firm in grace, when I'm not standing firm in my relationship and identity is secure because of what God's done for me through his son, but I'm beginning to believe that there's something that I have to do in order for God to approve of me and love of me and for his affection to be on me. When I begin to believe that and I'm no longer rooted in grace, when I love you, when I serve you, when I sacrifice for you, who am I really loving, serving, and sacrificing for? Me. When the theology of our heart begins to be something that says, I have to do something in order for God to love me, I have to love others, I have to sacrifice for others in order for God's affection to be on me, who is now effectively at the center of your hope? You are. Other people become tools by which you use to try to secure God's love and affection in your heart. You're not free to love others with abandon. Listen, if I have to love you and love other people for God to love me, I'm really only loving myself. But if we truly are justified in Christ alone, standing firm in grace, who's at the center of our story? Jesus is. When you embrace the offense of the cross, you're free to stand firm in grace. And when you're free to stand firm in grace, you're free to love others with abandon. Why? Because you don't have to love them in order for God to love you. All of a sudden, you're free now. You're free to sacrifice for others. Why? Because your sacrifice for them doesn't earn you anything before God. You're set, you're secure, you're rooted. Now you're free. Now you're not using them in order to get something from God. You're free to love them the way that you've been loved. If you're not rooted in grace, we, we can't love with that kind of abandon. Friends, you've got to catch, this has massive implications on all of our relationships. It has massive implications on our marriage, has massive implications on our parenting, has massive implications on our friendships. You see, if we want to serve someone else's needs, 
And we want to love them and serve them and sacrifice for them for their sake and not for our own needs and our own sake. You're going to have to be rooted in and standing firm in the truth that God has already met your greatest and most ultimate need in his son. Because if you're not standing firm in that grace, those actions and those relationships become nothing but a means to you trying to secure it. And you can't love free. You can't love with abandon. To experience and live in the fullness of the freedom that's ours by the grace of God, you've got to stand firm in that grace. To love with abandon, you've got to stand firm in that grace. And not just that, we've got to long for the fullness of redemption. To love others with abandon. The way that we have been so freely and fully loved by God through Christ. We have to be a people who are longing for the fullness of redemption. And here's how it works. As you're standing firm in grace, the gospel is securing your heart in the knowledge that the fullest satisfaction in life that your heart desires, that depth of desire for satisfaction and delight that God hardwired in your heart, when you're rooted in grace, embracing the gospel, the offense of the cross, you're free to recognize that that satisfaction is going to be fulfilled in a day that's yet to come. A day for which your heart is longing for. You see, if you and I live today as though that craving in our heart has to be satisfied today, if you and I live forgetting the hope of righteousness, all the fullness that is going to come when God redeems brokenness and restores the fullness of his glory, when you and I forget that, quit longing for that, we then turn to people today to try to fulfill that satisfaction that we were wired to be satisfied for then. What happens? All of a sudden you become a means for me to try to meet that need and that satisfaction. All of a sudden, again, our relationships, our acts of love, our acts of service, whatever they look like on the outside, become means by which to fulfill something that God is meant to fulfill in a day that's yet to come. Now we begin using one another again. I love how one writer said it. He said, if the thing we do most eagerly today is to wait for ultimate satisfaction tomorrow, around our house we call that delayed gratification, if the thing we do most eagerly today is wait for ultimate satisfaction tomorrow, then we're free today to pursue our ultimate satisfaction in serving other people. Did you catch that? He said we're free from the tyranny of trying to find that satisfaction today because our theology of the gospel tells us it's not going to come until glory. When we're not longing for the fullness of God that God has promised, setting the hope of our satisfaction in the day that he has promised, and we try to suck that out of people today, we can't love freely. Friends, Paul said, you and I, by the grace of God, we're called to freedom. Only don't let that freedom be used as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's argument has been this. As you believe that you are indeed loved by God, as you increasingly stand firm in grace, 
standing firm, confident that Jesus did all that was required of you, that he was punished in your place for your sins. And in standing firm in that grace, you are longing for the day in the hope of righteousness, knowing that your deepest desires will be met in that day. Here's what will happen. We won't waste our days here and now trying to get from other people that which God has promised and already fulfilled in his son. And we won't waste our days here and now biting and devouring each other using each other. Friends, don't miss what Paul said at the beginning of verse 5. This standing in grace, this standing firm in faith, this living by faith, this longing for the fullness of redemption. Paul said in verse 5, those things occur through the Spirit. Listen, if embracing the offense of the gospel and standing firm in grace and longing for the fullness of redemption, and loving others with abandon, we're dependent upon our ability to do it and maintain it, do you know how long we'd be free? How long we'd be Christians if that's what a free Christian looks like? Like five minutes. If all of that was dependent upon your ability to do it and maintain it, you might be able to do it for like five minutes. Friends, when we're not dependent upon the Spirit to produce in us and cultivate in us an embrace of the offense of the gospel and root us in the firmness of his grace towards us through his Son and cultivate in us a longing for the day in which Christ will return so that we're free to love others with abandon, Paul says what happens is we use that freedom as an opportunity for our flesh. When Paul talks about that flesh right there, do you know what he's talking about? Remember, it's the context of relationships and loving one another. That flesh right there is referring to our own sinful, selfish intentions. If it was up to us to maintain and to do all these things, what will begin to happen in our hearts is that we will begin to drive our relationships and aim our relationships towards what they can do for us. How they serve us. And the inevitable result is the fact that we bite and devour each other. Left unchecked, consuming one another. Every commentator I read on this passage, I think there are like four or five that we got in the office, every single one of them that I read described the words in verse 15 as a pack of wild animals living by the law of the jungle. Every time we try to do something, even if it's in our mind, obedience to God and loving, serving, sacrificing for someone else, but we're not rooted in the grace of God. Our heart is not increasingly longing for the fullness of what's going to happen. What eventually occurs is what one writer said, that love that's not redefined by the cross inevitably becomes predatory. Inevitably, it becomes predatory. What can I get for myself from you? How does this serve me? Does it make me look better in God's eyes? Does it score me more points with God? Is it scratching the itch and the craving in my heart for that deep and long satisfaction that I want? And I get that from you. And when I can't get that from you, we bite and we devour. Friends, Paul's already told us that's not the way of the cross. Galatians 2.20, Paul told us that he loved us. God loved us in his son and he gave himself for me. 
Friends, the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of freedom, the longing of the heart of God's people is to live in such a way that someone may say of us the same thing they said of our Savior, that he or she loved me and gave themselves for me. That's only a reality in our lives and through our lives as the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, continues to do his work in our hearts, rooting us deeper in grace cultivating in us a longing for eternity, freeing us to love as we've been loved, to experience the presence and the power of our Savior in our hearts. So the good news of Galatians chapter 5, at least the first 15 verses, is that you and I can indeed become more loving. Not because we've worked harder at it. Paul said, I've worked harder at all these things than anybody else. It's not because we can work harder at it to make ourselves become more loving. No. It's by the work of God's Spirit Himself increasingly gripping our hearts by the gospel and cultivating in us the freedom that's been purchased for us by the grace of God. Friends, we can, by God's grace and His Spirit, be a people who are increasingly able to love others with abandon. Live in and experience the fullness of the freedom that he's purchased for us in his son. So as we prepare to respond this morning, praying together and then receiving communion together, I I want this to be the cry of our heart this morning. God, work in me by your spirit a deeper embrace of the cross. Root me deeper in grace. Cultivate in me a longing for eternity. By your spirit, free me to love with abandon. Let me pray for us and then we'll have a chance to respond. Father, we thank you Lord, that it was for freedom that you set us free. We thank you that it's your spirit alive and at work in us, cultivating in us an embrace and a delight in the gospel that stirs our heart with joy and longing for the fullness of all that you have promised. God, set us free in that, that we might be a people who love the way that you've loved us. Lord, if we want to be marked by anything in the generations to come, let it be said that these people lived and enjoyed the freedom of the gospel and loved others with abandon. Well, let that be the legacy that you, that you create in this place. God, for that to be a reality, we need you to do the miraculous work by your spirit in our hearts. And for that, we ask and plead and, and pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.